Okay, so Brent just read the first part of Luke 13, 1 through 9. He's kind of priming the pump. That, uh, just keep those, those words in the back of your mind. I'm going to invite you to stand now and read the main event text. This is what we're going to actually focus on tonight. And it's Luke 13, 22 through 30. It goes like this. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you're from. And then you'll begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and west and from the north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's talk about news this evening. I'm not talking about fake news or network news or cable news. Those forms of news are editorials. They are intentionally opinionated. The kind of news I'm talking about is news that is declarative, news that announces a reality. So some news is good news. On Saturday, we got the word that Stella made the soccer team that she was trying out for. The news was proclaimed, it just is, that's just the way it is, and so we receive that news, and now we adjust our lives to that news, like adjusting all of our lives around that news, oh my gosh. Okay, but anyway, it is good news. Uh, some news, of course, is less joyful. We get the, the announcement of a loss. It's not an opinion, it just is. News of an illness, news of not getting a job or not making the team, that's a different kind of news. True, still, still the same. But sometimes, though, you can get news that seems one way and turns out to be something different than you thought altogether. So I'm reminded of the episode of in Arrested Development where Buster is at the, the beach in Southern California, and he's attacked by a loose seal. And so he's in the operating room, and the, the family's in the waiting room desperately waiting to hear news, and the doctor comes out and says, he's going to be all right. And so they're all happy and rejoicing that he's going to be all right. And he's, the doctor looks confused, like, what are you guys rejoicing about? And no, no, he'll be all right. Like, he had to amputate his left hand. Thank you. <clears throat> Sometimes we get passages in the Bible, like the one we're confronted with this evening, and we think, I knew it. I knew it. All that talk about the grace and love of Jesus, that's just fluff. I knew there was a catch. See, as it turns out, there's no grace. There's just narrow doors and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's how I came up with the sermon title. If you see in your bulletin, it's titled, It's Not What You Think. Passages like this one are precisely why we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible, not just skipping around to my favorite passages. A commitment to Scripture forces us to deal with the whole counsel of God. And oftentimes, what we find when we actually 
dig into a text is it's not quite what you think. Let me just give an overview before we dig into this text. We don't call this the book of Luke, do we? We call it the gospel of Luke. We've got the gospel of John, the gospel of Mark, and the gospel of Matthew. And gospel means good news. That's what that word means, good news. So even before we open this book, we know, okay, this is supposed to be good news. God, whom we rebelled against, made himself vulnerable and came to us as a baby. Who's ever been freaked out by a baby, except for new parents, which is, you should be freaked out. That's very frightening. But a baby is vulnerable and, and approachable, and that is how God, the God of the universe, whom we have, had, have offended through our sin, he comes to us in the form of a baby, that tells us something about how his approach is to us. And while Mary made her womb a home for, for, baby, for baby Jesus, she burst forth in prophetic song declaring how the arrival of her child would bring judgment on the corrupt and salvation to the oppressed. That is good news for those who are seeking God. And does anyone recall Jesus' first sermon in the gospel, the good news of Luke? It's a quote from Isaiah the prophet where Jesus stands up in synagogue and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news, to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he boldly proclaimed today in your presence this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus came to save from sin and death, but also from oppression and injustice. He was declaring the arrival of the kingdom of God, and it's good news to every single person who receives it. But it's dangerous news to those who had traded their allegiance to God for allegiance to the state, or to the marketplace, or to any other worldly power or authority. My point is that the presence of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the story of Jesus, all of it is intended to be good news. So if you think this passage isn't good news, then it's probably not what you think. Let's discover the good news of the text together. We're going to take it a few verses at a time. Um, so if you want to open up your Bibles, it's Luke 13. We're starting in verse 22. Uh, we're just going to take Luke, Luke 13, 22 and 23, just a nice little bite-sized chunk right there. It says that Jesus is teaching in these villages, and he's on his way to Jerusalem now. Uh, ironically, Jesus is literally on the way where he will give his life for everyone who's now going to confront him, uh, but that's a little secret that we know as the readers that his audience didn't know. Anyway, someone from the crowd says to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? It's an interesting question. Like, where does that come from? If you were going to ask Jesus anything, why would you ask him that? Well, Jesus was Jewish, just a reminder, and he taught and ministered within the nation of Israel. And the popular view of that time period was that when God came to rescue his people, he would redeem, rescue, save all of faithful Israel. That is, he would rescue Israelites who were righteous. And this is where the question comes from. Different religious movements within Israel taught different things about what it meant to be righteous. 
For example, you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the Qumran Desert um, in the mid-20th century, right? Well, there was a community called the Qumran community that lived out in that desert around the time of Jesus. And they taught a strict adherence to the law. And they taught that their way of following the law was the way that made a person righteous. So they expected that when God would bring his kingdom, they would be rescued. And everyone else, we're not so sure about. Others taught different takes on the law, like you've got the school of the rabbi Gamaliel or the the rabbi Shammai, and and different people would follow their teachings and their takes on what it means to be a righteous person. But the underlying prevailing wisdom of the masses was that God would rescue all of Israel because of his previous promises of deliverance. And so, as you can imagine, there's a mixture of pride and anxiety. Like the prevailing popular teaching for an Israelite, like if you're all Israelites, is like, we're probably going to be okay. But there's these other rabbis over here talking about you have to do these things, and these guys over here are talking about doing different things, and then these crazy dudes in the desert and in the Qumran community are telling us it's harder. What is the right thing to do? Am I okay? Am I going to be saved? Lord, you seem to be this good teacher. Are there just a few who are being saved? Anxiety became common. And, and people like this nameless man from the crowd had legitimate questions about who's going to be saved and who's going to be left out. Just an aside, it seems to me that if your religion or your gospel leaves you anxious or unsure if you are in the few, if you're in the saved group. It's not a very good gospel. Maybe you have similar questions or doubts this evening about yourself. Hang in there. Jesus has good news for us that is actually crystal clear in this passage, so just hang in, hang in. So the man is asking a legitimate question, but he's also asking from a position of privilege, He's Jewish, and the underlying assumption, as I said before, is that because they are God's people, and because they have the law and the prophets, because they have the temple, because they have genetic lineage to the patriarchs and prophets and kings, well, they're probably okay. All they had to do is figure out the right teaching, the right technique. They weren't nearly as far gone, at least, as the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Notice how Jesus does not respond to the man's question. He doesn't give an answer to the man's academic question. He doesn't give a number to how many people are going to be saved. He doesn't give a different teaching or a technique, well, you'll be saved if you do these things. He doesn't give another opinion, which would just add to more confusion and anxiety. You've got Gamaliel and Shammai and Qumran, now you've got Jesus offering a different set of rules. He doesn't offer that. Jesus doesn't want to add to our anxiety. He doesn't want to make things more ambiguous. And this passage clarifies for us. Listen to verses 24 and 25. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you're from. (laughs) Wait a minute. I thought Jesus didn't want to increase our anxiety. But here he is talking about this narrow door. I knew it, you're saying to yourself, in the end, this is going to end badly. 
it's not what you think. It's not what you think. Think of it this way. Instructions are there for a reason. Every summer, for the last several summers, I've done a father-daughter camping trip. A few summers ago, we went to Deception Pass. Samara was really little, like two or three. And so I thought it would be a better idea for us to swim in the freshwater little lake rather than the saltwater, which is freezing cold and there's pebbles and diapers and those don't mix. So I thought, we'll go to the freshwater thing. We get there and there's a big sign that says, no swimming, toxic algae. And I talked to the, you know, the park ranger there a day before a dog had gone swimming in there and died from ingesting too much water. Now, I didn't, I didn't say, that's not fair. That's kind of restrictive. You're telling me I can't swim? I mean, that would, you ruined my day. If I had let my kid swim in that water, it would have ruined my life. Right? So sometimes a warning or, or, or a restriction is, is a good thing. It's a grace, right? So Jesus is using stock prophetic imagery, the door to the banquet, to describe his way, his teaching, his, uh, his family. And he's saying the way to enter salvation is me. It's not through Qumran or through various teachings or different rabbis. It isn't through doing certain things or praying the right prayers. It's through relationship to Jesus. Jesus is saying through his words and his deeds that the kingdom of God has come near. The Savior is actually in your midst. Like when he's saying these things to people, he's like, dude, it's me. Seriously, you're looking all these ways. It's like, I'm right here. I'm right here. The rescue mission has been initiated. Don't delay by seeking other ways. Don't miss out on the opportunity to come to Jesus, to enter through the door. The term narrow door doesn't mean it's hard. It means it's specific. It isn't intended to keep people out. It's intended to be as clear as possible that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The way to the Father is through him. So these people had seen Jesus work. Remember that. I mean, the the ones he's talking to in this passage, he's talking about narrow doors, and he's talking about coming through the door before it's locked. He's talking to people who literally have eaten with him and seen his, like, do amazing things, raise people from the dead, multiply food, heal people with shriveled limbs, and they, they come better. They've heard him teach firsthand. And and not just teach like somebody else, but he says things that only God says and does things only God can do. And he's saying, don't be anxious about which way is the right way to salvation. It's me. I'm right in front of you. Now, there's this nagging word that seems like it might contradict everything I've been saying up to this point. It's the word strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Some translations have, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. And on the surface, this would appear to be yet another bait and switch. You talk about grace, but in the end, your fears are justified. You have to strive to work hard at entering through the narrow door. Then you start to ask questions. Well, who works hard enough? How much is enough? How much do I have to strive? Oh, anxiety, I can never know if it's enough two simple observations. One, Jesus's original audience would have expected there to be a lot of hardship involved. All of their teachers taught paths of rigor and strict adherence to the law in order to be a righteous person. And while they had all different takes on what rigorous things people had to do, they all would have expected that Jesus would come back with something super rigorous. 
Rigor only bugs us because we're soft. I'm sorry, just... But Jesus' answer would have caught them by surprise. And this is where knowing a little Greek is helpful, okay? In Greek, as many inflected languages uh, are, are the same way, verbs can take two or three forms, right? So you can change the ending of the word strive in Greek, and it can be in the active, or it can be in the passive, or it can be in the middle. For example, let's talk about the verb uh, counsel, right? So if I want to say that in an active voice, uh, I give counsel to Evan. I give counsel to Evan. That's the active. I'm doing it. If I want to say that in a passive way, we don't have a, a passive way to say that with the word give, so I change the word. I receive advice from Evan. Okay? So the active voice is, I give advice to Evan. The passive voice is, I receive advice from Evan. But in Greek, there's another voice called the middle voice. And in the middle voice, it describes both subjects in the sentence as participants in the same outcome. So in the middle uh, voice, I might say, we take counsel together. I don't give you advice as the primary actor. I don't receive advice as a mere receiver or a passive person. We participate in mutuality. Eugene Peterson writes, most of our speech is divided between the active and passive. Either I act or I'm acted upon. But there are moments, and these are those in which we are most distinctly human, when such a contrast is not satisfactory. Two wills operate together, neither to the exclusion of the other, neither canceling the other out, each respecting the other. And guess what voice the verb for strive is in? The middle. Yes, it's in the middle voice. And so we might translate it like this. Make every effort to act upon Jesus' invitation to enter through the narrow gate. He's saying, it's here, it's the narrow gates. Come in! I didn't ask you to do anything. It's not about how much rigor. It's not about following all the rules or doing enough or keeping a checklist of good things versus bad things. Just come in. Oh, you got to love Greek sometimes because that, that's hidden in there if you just think it's about striving. The door is open. The way's been clarified. Enter before it's too late. Otherwise, the text says, we may find ourselves knocking on the outside, looking in. But in the end, we find we were never in relationship with Jesus. Verses 26 through 28 then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. Jesus' point is that you can't be his disciple by, by proxy, by just being part of the crowd or near him. It isn't the same thing as trusting him and knowing him. See, the Israelites thought that they were saved because they had the right bloodline, or because they did the right things, or because they followed the right rabbi who taught the right things. And some of the crowds following Jesus thought they were fine because, hey, we're listening to like all this dude's sermons, and some of them are long, my goodness, and they ate with him, and they followed him around. But Jesus isn't looking for fans and groupies. He's looking for people who respond to his teaching and his presence with humility and with trust and with obedience. Some who thought they were in by association will find that they never knew him at all, and they'll weep 
and they'll gnash at teeth. That is classic ancient Near Eastern way of saying deep regret. Like you can imagine people who thought they were invited to the party, they get there, the bouncer's like, sorry, your name's not on the list, and they see people in the party who they thought have no business being there, and it's like this this weeping and gnashing of teeth, this deep regret that you had totally blown it because you didn't actually listen to the Lord. And this was a shocking statement because culturally people were included in things by association. They're Israelites by birth. They're part of the family of God by inheritance and obedience to the law. But Jesus is saying that those things by themselves aren't enough. Just going to church, just singing songs or doing good things, that's not the same as knowing Jesus. It'd be like a concert group. I'm trying to think of a band that the least people hate and the most people, I don't know. So like take you 2 right? Like just kind of a vanilla band. I know, sorry, Ian, they're great. Uh, but they're okay. So it's like, so let's say you're a U2 groupie and you've, you've gone to like a hundred shows. You get like front row seats every time and the edge is literally sweat on you. And one time Bono like gave you a high five because he does it, you know, he goes around. And you go to a hundred shows, you're, you are like the U2 groupie. Now how weird would it be if you show up at Bono's door and knock on it and say, hey, I'm, I'm here for the party I see that you're throwing. He's like, I never knew you, brother. Because <laughs> that's more like Desmond on Lost, but anyway. It, it, it's that crazy. Like Jesus is saying in this original context, just being born into something, just being a groupie isn't the same as knowing me or trusting me or loving me or obeying me. And we need to hear that, that just being around Jesus' teaching isn't the same thing as obeying it. When I went to to boot camp a long time ago, they tried to instill healthy diet and healthy practices, and a lot of these kids coming in were using tobacco products, and so it's like a nine-week deal where it's dry campus and no tobacco and all this kind of stuff. So they were trying to instill like hey, you're going to quit for nine weeks in a row. You might as well just make it a lifestyle. And so the people that taught all these health classes were corpsmen. These are the medical technicians of the Coast Guard. I tell you what, I, I never saw so many smokers than the corpsmen themselves. Every break, they're out smoking. The guy giving us the lecture literally looked like an old piece of leather, and he could only be in his 30s. He was just, it was gross. Knowing the right information the right doctrine, the inside lingo, none of it matters unless you practice it, right? It doesn't matter unless you practice it. And I I want us, we need to sit with that for a moment. It's particularly convicting for those of you who have been around church for a while. I mean, I feel it as as a a professional Christian. Uh, It's really easy to just do stuff you know, and, and, and start to lose the reason why you're doing the stuff you're doing, the one that I'm worshiping. There can be a sense of over-familiarity with Christian talk and Christian work, but not enough devotion and obedience to Jesus, okay? So, I, some of you, I know that that's going to ring a bell with. Others are like, so glad I'm not in that crowd. That, I, 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 I'm glad you're not in that crowd. But some of you know what I'm talking about, right? So we, we just need to check ourselves. Like, take this as a gift, as an opportunity. Like, Lord, help me to do this stuff with passion. Okay. But there's something else I want to say. It, it's better to be close to God and his people than being far away. 
in Scripture, God works through all kinds of people. And it's true that he, you know, the, our favorite stories are those ones where he works through all kinds of people who are way on the fringes and just Samaritans and people like that. But he always brings them back inside the family. And we hear lots of stories about Jesus at odds with religious leaders that might give us the false impression that the more religious one is, the more danger they're in. I just want to say, I think that's a false assumption. The truth is that Jesus is at odds with people who are disobedient and unwilling to receive him. He's harder on religious leaders because they ought to know better. But they're also in a better uh, position to appreciate who he is. Just consider for a moment all the religious people who are uniquely poised to receive Jesus. Zechariah was a priest, and Elizabeth, his wife, was a righteous woman. Mary, the first disciple who mothered Jesus, but was also obedient. That's her main gift. Consider Simeon and Anna, this elderly people who are waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Anna is a church lady. Like, this lady is a lady that you and I might think is unstable if we knew her today. She was a widow for a long time, and so we would probably psychologize Anna and say, you know, she's probably mourning the loss, and she's um, numbing her loneliness by going to the church and knitting and praying prayers, and we would think she's got, like, an imbalance. But Anna prayed her prayers every day, and she's waiting for the kingdom of God. And when baby Jesus comes to the temple and all these people are walking by him and and not caring, it's Simeon and Anna, the elderly couple who are there, who are religious people who have soft hearts because their, their way was prepared to receive Jesus. They were people of the word. The disciples of Jesus, you know, we, we, we focus on the riffraffness of them, these fishermen and tax collectors. They're Jewish dudes. They had memorized the Torah by the age of 13. They could kick our butts in scripture memory. They're religious dudes. Paul was a former Pharisee and Bible scholar before he followed Jesus. So, so there's, there's not a, it's good to know the scriptures. It's good to be around the people of God. Will Christian religion save you? No. No, not at all but being part of the community that worships together and serves together and submits to Scripture and the Spirit together and plays together, that is an infinitely better place to find Jesus than just winging it and hoping that you get it someday. And I think that's why we have such a strong commitment on intergenerational ministry with our kids and elders doing things together, dedicating little Sloan today and making that commitment to raise kids up in the story of God. Maybe you're here today and you're convicted because you've grown complacent. Don't despair. Jesus is literally, like in this passage, calling us back to himself. The door is not yet shut. But others won't resonate with the insider. Others will be here feeling quite on the outside and wondering if there's a place at the table for them. Hear verses 28 through 30. And they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Jesus is gathering all people to himself, not just Israelites, not just certain ethnicities or genders or nationalities or philosophies. Jesus is gathering any and all who would receive him from the four corners of the earth. And his message is that it's, it's not what you think. 
It may look out there like the privileged and the wealthy and the powerful and the elite of this world are first, but in reality, the kingdom will turn those assumptions upside down. What matters is not power or knowing a bunch of religious stuff. What matters is entering through the narrow door. It's placing our faith in Jesus. It's trusting that his sacrifice for us is sufficient and that his way of life that he invites us into is superior and that he's trustworthy to be our Savior and Lord. So if you're here and you're feeling anxious about whether or not even you can be rescued from sin and death, rejoice. Jesus has made the way crystal clear. He is the door that leads to life. Would you pray with me? Lord, I I thank you that you get our attention, that sometimes it takes unpacking a passage that is so stark and in our face. And I thank you that you love us enough not just to to blow us off or to say, oh, they're never going to get it. It strikes me as amazing that these, many of these same leaders would be the ones calling for your crucifixion. And yet when you rose from the grave, you did not go on a vendetta of revenge. You didn't zap people with your God powers. Instead, you went to your disciples, you taught, you ministered, and you charged us with spreading the good news of your love and your compassion. I thank you that that's who you are. And I pray for grace to help us respond to you in faith and in humility. Amen.